Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. I'm proud to partner with Pendleton Whiskey. Pendleton Whiskey just released its fourth annual We've Got Your Sixth Limited Edition Military Bottle to honor veterans of the United States Armed Forces. Pendleton Whiskey has pledged to donate $100,000 of proceeds to support the Bob Woodruff Foundation, which helps create healthy, positive futures for our service members, veterans, and their families. Go to PendletonWhiskey.com and check out their cocktails page, which provides a Western spin on your classic cocktails. All right, let's get to it. Pendleton Distillers, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Please drink responsibly. Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. We've got Zach Williams uh, today. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation about mental health. Uh, Zach has dedicated his life to helping others and impacting uh, others uh, on the, the the mental and emotional side. And let's be honest, you know, Zach and I spoke before this. Um, mental health does not mean mental weakness. It means you're out of balance. Some things are going on in your life that you're 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 a human, and you just got to find a way to get back into uh, into balance or deal with the depression, the anxiety that you have. Oh, yes. And Zach, uh, you may better know him through his father, Robin Williams, who defined uh, a generation of TV and comedy uh, that particularly a lot of generations, including my generation, uh, grew up on. Zach, thank you for uh, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's an absolute privilege to be here today. Well, Zach, I know we, we have one thing in common. Uh, you were you so you were born in San Francisco. Or raised in San Francisco. Born and raised. Born, Born and, and raised. raised in San Francisco until I was 18 when I moved to New York. Ooh, that is a, uh, that's a shift. Because you, you got your MBA from Columbia, but where did you do your undergrad? I went to New York University. I studied uh, linguistics. Linguistics. Interesting. What pushed you that direction uh, for that major? Um, well, actually, for me, I, was, I started becoming interested in the acquisition of language, especially how children started learning language and it was a discipline and science that I knew very little about. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And there's a technical element, which I love I'm more so technically minded. And so it gave me an opportunity to really understand the deeper elements of not only how we process language, but how we learn and how we share ideas and symbols to make up, you know, communication. And uh, underlying that also was my interest in artificial intelligence. And uh, linguistics is very much a, uh, a constituent of that discipline. No kidding. It, you know, I took in my undergrad business marketing, which having gone and got my MBA, just I wish I would have focused on something different, like either English rhetoric or, uh, or history, which sort of combines all of those. But um, I will definitely... Uh, not push my kids to uh, to go into a major that uh, necessarily they don't they don't have a passion for. Um, you know, I know that you know, growing up under a father uh, like you had uh, an amazing man, um, that sometimes that naturally pushes you towards the entertainment uh, realm. And you look at you know Colin Hanks or Patrick uh, Schwarzenegger who who followed in the footsteps of their respective fathers. I mean, what was it like growing up? Uh, watching your dad on TV and in the uh, and in the movies, it was weird at first. Of course, as as you come to realize, it's all you know. <laughs> it suddenly becomes quite normal, and you see the sets, you see the different actors manifesting on the screen, and you and you're like, this is just what it is. This is part of 
a normal experience. The thing was growing up in San Francisco, um, where there's not a really there's there's an entertainment industry, but there's it's not nearly as developed as Los Angeles. And and for me, my upbringing was pretty normal, for lack of a better word. Um, and so there was there was kind of almost like a suspension of belief around everything that was going on with my father's career and what was going on with the films and then his home and family life. Right. And so from my lens, I I always had interest in entertainment. Um, But for me, what, what was a greater draw was business and building products and learning about systems and helping change behavior through, you know, systematizing ideas. And so I think it's not that I wasn't interested in entertainment. I, I am and will continue to be. It's more so that other things were drawing me forward, you know, with more magnetism. So, so I loved seeing my father in films, but the films that I was most attracted to might be films that would be considered lesser known. No kidding. Outside of the genre of what he did. Well, no, I mean, the films I was attracted to that he did might be considered lesser known. I mean, my favorite films of his were World According to Garp, Fisher King, Good Morning Vietnam. Some people might know those films, but they might not be as kind of front and center as Mrs. Doubtfire or you know, some did, other did, did you just say Good Morning Vietnam was a lesser known film? Because that, that would shake my world as I know it, man. Maybe, that, <laughs> maybe that's just I mean, it, dep- it, it depends. I, you know, I would say uh, of, of all his films, Good Morning Vietnam was one that I think was <clears throat> was one of his best by far, but um, not one that people come up and share to me as being their favorite, which is actually, a, you know, one could can, could be considered unusual because it's a phenomenal film. Oh, I, w- I was going to give my best rendition uh, of uh, of his intro to that radio show, but uh, I would... I would not do him justice, and I would also embarrass myself in the uh, the process. But no, that was one of my favorite well, flicks. Well, our listeners will feel their your rendition in their heart and soul. Should so I be- appreciate that. Good morning, Vietnam. Let's see. No, All right, good totally. start. Good start. No, great, great film. Um, did, now, you know the fact that your parents lived in in San Francisco was that done intentionally by your parents to not live in the the Hollywood Los Angeles area? And to sort of keep you separate? Um, I think I think my parents love the quality of life in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mind you, that's a quality of life that has degraded somewhat over time. But but San Francisco, the one that I grew up in, was a phenomenal place to live in. And I believe will be a phenomenal place to live in. A certain key issues around kind of what's happened over the, a period of time are, are fixed up. I, do, I could not agree more, man. But uh, growing up in San Francisco in the 80s and the 90s was was awesome. I mean, I still have a lot of family there. Uh, cousin on the police department, cousin in the uh, the fire department. Um, no, San Francisco is, I mean, you go to the top of Coit Tower. That is one of the most beautiful scenes you'll ever see uh, uh, anywhere. The, the the bay and everything else, it will, hopefully I'm with you, it'll it'll sort of bounce back. Uh, we just need some good leadership in there to, to, to make the right decisions. But um you know, when did you feel that you had that passion, as you said, towards the the business realm, the 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 as you said, creating products, systems, things along those lines? When when did that bug hit you? When did you know at what age that was your path? 
Uh, <laughs> I I didn't I didn't put my finger on it until actually I was over thirty. <laughs> the thing was, I, I I'm just attracted, was attracted, am attracted to people building cool things, things that I think are valuable to other people. And so for me, it was less so about, hey, it's about the systems and products. It's more so about this human's doing something cool. I want to learn more about that and learn how I can better help them. And, you know, that started with video games and help build, you know, a restaurant guide and uh, in my early career. But but ultimately that transitioned more into um, focus on mental health and and things like you know evidence-backed approaches towards supporting people also ai also ways in which you can kind of take the premise hey that's cool and evolve it into hey that's cool and it will change the way in which humanity thinks about this right and so kind of i think i think for a lot of people there's a major opportunity if, if they can love what they do and learn during the first part of their career, learn how to do it better, develop mastery of craft, things like that, and then apply it to, hey, I've learned all these things. Now I can go out and make the most impact I possibly can. That shift happened for me about six years ago. No kidding. So, you know, I was kind of in my early 30s when I realized, hey, it's like you've learned all these things, but now go put them to major use but let's be honest man that is the hardest part though is uh is finding what you're passionate about i mean and, and i don't know you know let's let's put some realism to this you got to make money to support your family and, and your lifestyle whatever that is right. and some people have a higher uh let's uh, say a higher quality of life that costs more money but um hell i found it early i loved the military not necessarily the job per se but but just being surrounded by like-minded people and, and being part of a tribe. And then when I had to leave, you know, when I'm 40, it was the, Oh shit. What am I passionate about now? And it's, it's hell I'm 44. And I think I'm starting to, to sort of figure that out again. But, um, you know, for you again, having a, a father of, 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 uh, you know, celebrity status, did your parents, you know, what, what was their advice to you? Go find your passion, blaze your own trail. Not, they didn't push you in one direction. Um, how, how did that sort of the, your, your coaching and mentoring from your parents go with regards to that aspect? You know, it's a great question. I was talking about it with my wife two days ago. Um, she's an entrepreneur. She's a co-founder of my company. She also has a tech company focused on helping women find friendships and um, called Vina. Uh, and our company is called PIM, PIM.com, prepare your mind. And uh, we realized that from our perspectives, our experience around it was our parents wanted us to be happy doing what we were doing. And that's what my father wanted. He wanted me to be happy. The thing is, is that what I hope for myself, I mean, I, I picked up on this several years ago, but you know, for people potentially listening is that finding ways to create an occupation for yourself that makes you happy is something that I didn't initially set out to do, but I ultimately found. And for people whom want to 
you know, establish a career and sustain and support their family and the like, you know, I think most people, not everybody, but I, I ideally most everyone can find the opportunity to support their family and do what makes them happy. Right. The good thing is, and the, and the positive feedback loop around this is if you do what makes you happy, you will get better at doing that thing over time. You might suck at it at first, but you know, it will keep you engaged. And if you're talking about incremental improvement, part of the part of how incremental improvement works is you have to stay engaged over a period of time. Yeah. Right. And so happiness should go hand in hand with that. The thing for me is, hey, yeah, you're thinking, uh, you know, one would think, oh, you know, what makes you happy? Eating food, hence gonna learn how to cook or become a professional eater. It's like, yeah, that's an element of being happy. But, but I'm really finding it's really about the meaningful happiness that you can derive from meaningful work, from fulfillment in life. And for me, it's all about service, right? I, I discovered that being of service makes me happy. And so I initially started my career at Electronic Arts making video games. And I was like, you know, that was very much aligned with, hey, I love video games, hence I'm going to do this and it makes me happy. I love making video games. It was a very fulfilling uh occupation. Um, but in the longer run, I, I, over time, what I, what I started realizing was there's that kind of surface level happiness. And then there's that deep, meaningful, fulfilling level of happiness. And that's ultimately what I was drawn to over a period of time. And linking back to your question, um, my parents wanted to see me happy. And so the thing for me is that definition of happiness evolved over time. Mm -hmm. It always related to having a career, having, you know, a way to sustain and support myself. But the, the snaking evolution around it ultimately led me to discover that service is my path to happiness. Probably similarities in what, what you've done in the military. There's a major element of service with that, right? 100%. 100%. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, find what you're happy, but then pour into it, pour into it, and, and, right, and make, it make it your career, make it your profession. And, and I think, right. you know, I think a lot of people get it wrong is they're like, well, if I turn what, what I'm happy about into a profession, then it'll just become toxic at some point. And, and I can understand that, you know, I, you know, I saw my dad start a company. He was also born and raised in San Francisco, a marketing company. That was his passion. That's what he loved. But towards the end. You know, it just changed, but um, and eventually sold the company. But I think that is just the the, the ebbs and flows of life. And, and you yourself said you didn't find your path until six years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, I was thirty three. Thirty three, and so you know that of course is after after you lost your father. I'm sure that that helped push you in in a certain direction. In well, well, the, the direction it pushed me towards was alcohol, <laughs> really active alcoholism yeah. and trauma. Um, so, so yes, in that sense, it certainly did. And not to say I wasn't self-medicating and and manifesting some, you know, some alcoholic trauma. tendencies, but it really came fr front and center. Sorry, I wasn't manifesting some alcoholic tendencies prior to his passing, but it didn't come front and center until after. He passed away so you, and you found a mechanism, not a good mechanism, but you found a mechanism to, 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 to numb the pain. Uh, so, right. And again, you know, I, Hey, I'm going to withhold judgment, uh, from, 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 from those type of things in the future. Cause quite frankly, 
I turned to a little bit of alcohol when I left the military and I lost my tribe and my, my sense of purpose. You know, that, that's what I, and then also the guilt of, of leaving guys behind. But let me ask you this, cause you know, so go ahead, go ahead. So, yeah, no, first off, Mike, I really appreciate you sharing that you turned to that. For me, it was my path to healing and recovery that led me to discover service. So, you know, I've been sober for over five years at this point, And the lens that I've had is it, it required me to kind of see, look into the abyss to help me discover, you know, the road to healing and recovery and finding joy and happiness. So like that was the frame of reference around. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long have you been married? Uh, this time around two years. Two years? Okay. Did, did you know your current wife when you're going through those times? Or did you meet her after? She helped me. She helped me find a, a solutions to healing. Okay. We created a whole company around it. Yeah. Uh, my company's focused on nutrition for mental well-being. I mean, I just learned all about this because when I stopped drinking, I was just a bit of a nervous wreck and anxious and sad and you know just feeling all these things. And it turns out that you know I was using alcohol to self-medicate and. She helped me really understand and identify. It's like, hey, you're not taking care of yourself and help. You know, you should look at what you're doing over the course of the day and start recalibrating around that. But we were just friends around around that time. We just we ultimately went through our respective uh, breakups and then discovered that we were actually uh, designate designated is not the right word. We were we were destined to to start a life together. That's dude. That's awesome. Um, what, and it's funny you say depression and anxiety. I had never had anxiety, anxiety in the military once ever it, it, on, on my combat deployments ever. And then once I'm out, I started to get this sensation. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it started to date my now wife and literally had to pull the car over and call her and say, I think I'm having a heart attack. She's like, it's not a heart attack. You're healthy. It's anxiety. Um, she helped me breathe through it and then, uh, get back on my way. But, uh, and, and I was still drinking at that time, but, uh, what I do want to go backwards, but before we do, what was the, the final nail in the coffin during those hard times when you were utilizing uh, alcohol to numb the pain? Was it a certain event or, or, or someone in your life that, that put that nail in the coffin and said, Hey, time out we're not going down this path anymore. You've got to, uh, you've got to course correct. Okay, well, I'm just going to lay it all out there in the spirit yes, of vulnerability yes, is that I, I was going I was going through a divorce. I was going through a lawsuit. Uh, my father's widow decided to take my family to court. Um, and I was traumatized from my father dying by suicide. And that collection of things um, led me to not want to feel anything. Right. And so is it like a, it was a trifecta primarily, but it was, it was also like, you know, I need to be accountable here. It's not just like divorces, breakups happen. I mean, it was very much relating to how I was self-medicating and treating, not feeling great most of the time. And so, you know, the lens for me, the nail in the proverbial nail in the coffin was not wanting to get up and go through the day because I was fearful and afraid and anxious about what the day would bring. And, and I said to myself, I can't continue down this journey meaningfully and see, you know, a happy, unhappy outcome. 
to it. And so, so the lens for me was just like, there has to be something better than this. And that's that better something likely has to do with taking better care of myself. Cause the alternative is not taking better care of myself. And it's not like that's going to see some, some major, you know, awesome outcome. It, it, you, you, it really, I, I had to take a lens of courage and just say, Hey, you know, anything has to be better than this. So you just started kind of like this principle of look what's in front of you, figure out what you can do to change those things in your environment and then incrementally stack up the good so that ultimately the good days outweigh the bad days. And ultimately you can orient around how you want to live your life and who you want to be and how you want to be happy. So it was a, it was a procedural thing. I, I think you said you used the right, right word. <clears throat> it takes a lot of courage to change that pattern uh, of behavior behavior. Cause let's be honest, the easiest thing to do is just to, to continue lying in bed and using alcohol. That's the easiest thing to do just to stick with what you know. But for a lot of people that, that leap that you made is the hardest part. Um, you, it's no different than, than, than somebody who's struggling with obesity who can't break their dietary habits from what's making them obese. That's the hardest thing in the, in, in the world. And, and kudos to you, man, for, for, for taking that leap. Well, Mike, you know, Mike, you brought up a really good point, which is you didn't, anxiety wasn't a thing when you were actively deployed. Right. And when you're busy, whether it, you know, in my case, it was grieving or with work, I have a tendency to work a lot. And, you know, when, when that stops, that kind of that structure ends and you're suddenly left to stew in your own thoughts and things like that, that's when things can get kind of intense. Right. And, you know, for me, it just so happened. The catalyst was, you know, leaving my job to kind of start figuring out how to better take care of myself and things like that. But that just ultimately led to a, you know, a cascade of things that led me ultimately to discovering sobriety, but also a path to healing, uh, ultimately healing from the trauma, discovering solutions for the anxiety, discovering solutions for the depression. And a large part of that was mental health advocacy. You, you say mental health, that wasn't a term that was all that widely used, you know, eight, 10, 12 years ago. Um, you know, I, I want to get to the work that you're doing now because I, I find it so intriguing that you're, you're not only putting certain practices and procedures in place, but you actually are attacking it from the ingestibles and, and, you know, certain, uh, holistic, uh, substances, substances that, that can help people with mental health. But, um, you know, this is the last question I have about your father. Um, sure. I want to view it from a different angle. Uh, I know you were really close to your father. Uh, you considered him your best friend. Um, I know how, how you've spoken about him, uh, especially in the H HBO documentary, which was, uh, come inside my head. Um, and I know he was a loving, loving father, but, uh, you said something, I'm going to read this that sometimes your father did not feel like he was succeeding yet. He was the most successful person you knew. And I think anyone who, who looked from an outside lens into Robin Williams would agree with that statement. I mean, I look at Robin Williams and I think, Oh, one of the, one of the most uh, established comedians uh, of my time. W what did you mean uh, by that? Um, often when you find folks who are so propelled and so engaged around what they do that the level of where they are versus where they want to be will never essentially be achieved. Um, even people at the pinnacle of their performance. And it's the nature of highly successful people 
but also in certain contexts, it can lead to highly successful people not feeling like they're anywhere near there, not feeling like they're anywhere near where they can be. And I think in his case, you know, especially when in, in the, especially in the field of entertainment, when you're going out there, you're constantly putting stuff out there and you're being judged constantly. It's not only just movies, TV, it's also stand up. And I think in in his situation, in my father's situation, it was um, and this isn't unique to him mm -hmm. specifically when it comes to entertainers. Many people have approached me specifically about this saying, you know, I, I identify with that experience. You know, you can have success, but you but that doesn't mean you're going to feel success. The thing about entertainment and specifically stand up comedy and the like is that you success for you go so far as your audience in the room, right? In the case of film and TV, it's critics, but, you know, critics and then, you know, box office and then, you know, ultimately potentially audience scores of people, you know, reviews, social media, things like that. In the case of stand-up comedy, you're only as good as your, your last show, right? That's what sticks with you. And so, yeah, it can be super successful. That might feel great, but the next show might be an off day or an off room or things like that. And it, just sets thing along a whole other path. And, you know, I'm oriented towards that same way, too, um, in that, you know, having had the opportunity to achieve some success, a mode of success, but but I don't feel it. All I see is what's ahead. What can we do better? How can I improve? How can we, you know, calibrate, tune? And I'm not a perfectionist. It's not about perfection. It's about a mission that drives me forward where it's you know, until I see, until I see a couple couple things happen, I'm not going to even deign my work as success. And you know, th of course, that means more resourcing for mental health communities. It means every American <laughs> getting, you know, access to high quality, affordable, equitable care. You know, it's like these things. Like that's success for me. In my father's case, he wanted everyone in the world to be happy. <laughs> you know, so that's a huge burden was, to take on. That's an unrealistic burden is. to take on. It is. And so, you know, two things specifically, he wanted to help people laugh and help people learn. Right. And, you know, I would say in conjunction with that, he wanted to see people happy. And so, you know, that's, that's where I was coming from when yeah. I was saying that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of professions, there's a lot of experiences for people, both in the US and abroad, where it's not uncommon. It's not an uncommon thing. It's just, you know, when it comes to exceptional careers, um, it can be surprising when you're like, oh, wow, this person is at the top of his game. You know, according to one recent survey, it was like he's the third most recognized person in American history, which was surprising. That's insane. My news for living Americans. That's awesome. Third most, third most liked, excuse me, had that third best highest impression behind. It's like Abraham Lincoln and... MLK, right? And it was just like, I was like, whoa, that's wild. Was it, MLK was it, Jr. I'm sorry, was that said after he passed away or before? Yeah. That's, dude, he, yeah, he that. is smiling down. Um, not the way he would have wanted to hear that, but he, he has to be smiling down that if he wanted to make people laugh, if he wanted to make pe people feel happy, there's no greater indicator than that, uh, that ranking. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I think... It's an interesting thing to see. It was a YouGov poll, um, and uh, but but I'm, I'm not surprised. You know, um, from my lens, 
if you're oriented towards wanting people to be happier, and I guess in the case of, you know, Abraham Lincoln and MLK Jr., like free, you know, um, but I, I think the lens of making a mission to help people laugh and learn is one that other people can identify with. That's really what it comes down to. Zach, in, in, in I'm looking at this through through my lens, having known a couple guys who have taken their own lives, uh, there were no indicators. There were none. None of us would have suspected that these guys were struggling to the degree that they were, that they took their own lives. Um, and that's, that's conversations, uh, hindsight of uh, some of our friends committing suicide. Did you feel there were any signs with your father leading up to that fateful day? Uh, one consideration just in, in within the suicide prevention yeah. community is dying by suicide. Yeah. Um, just it's something I learned over time mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's helpful for me because it helps establish the fact that to your point, um, there's, you know, we don't know for different people, there's not necessarily agency. It's, it's, you know, things it's, it's symptomatic of all sorts of other things. Right. And, you know, from my experience, what I've learned is that you said it, you know, indicators were not apparent, indicators were not prevalent, and it comes out of the blue. And the key thing is, is uh, really supporting populations and helping provide resources um, so that they know when it when it comes because people aren't necessarily going to reach out, especially to family and friends with stigma when there's stigma associated with it and things like that is if they have top of mind solutions and resources that they can reach out to, it puts, it puts people in a better situation to help manage um, their feelings and potential ideation. And that's why I was so, so focused on supporting uh, content and spreading awareness around 988, the crisis lifeline, because what's become critically apparent is that education is a key element. And um, you know, when it comes to things like suicide and the like, first off, we need to remove the blame. That's really when I say, you know, dying by suicide and the like, committing associates it with a crime, right? And, you know, I, I, I am not a stranger to the experience of having friends, family mm -hmm. die by suicide. When I was 12 years old, my cousin, who was one of my closest friends, died by suicide. And, you know, at the time we say, it very, you know, very succinct, uh, very matter of factly, he committed suicide. And I associated so much blame with him and, uh, and, you know, his act. I was like, why was he so selfish? Why, why was his experience one that led him to deprive the world and his family of, of this beautiful human being? Right. And the frustration and anger for me was really came out of the place was like, this was out of the blue. This was something that I didn't know was an issue. He lived, he lived, you know, across the United States for me, but we would see each other quite often. And, um, and you know, the resources available at the time were scant and he was 13 years old. Sorry, he wasn't 12. He was 13. I was 12. And, um, the challenge from my perspective is, and I learned this later too, is that like we're oriented towards frustration and anger and like asking ourselves what could have been done, what could have been done better. How could we have improved the situation or circumstances or environment? And in many, many, many cases, 
the only thing that could have been done is giving people the resources they have at hand. I mean, there, there's certain things like someone on a path of addiction, right? Or, you know, um, in a situation where they're experiencing serious mental illness and don't have the support they need. There, there are certain things that can be established to provide a better, more suitable environment prior to that. But in situations where you're not seeing indicators, you have to provide education to as many people as possible so that they know where they can go to when they're in need, because often the case is they can't go to their family. In many situations, they can't go to their friends because they're, they, you know, in certain peer environments, they feel they might be ridiculed or teased or not be taken seriously, right? And so we see across the board, you know, frustration, both from the individual side, but also from the communities and families being like, we, we have frustration and resentment because he didn't share any of this. Therefore, you know, there is blame to be had in this circumstance. And, you know, I think we really need to take a new orientation around things and understand that it's not about blame. It's about education. It's about resources. It's about culture. It's about stigma. And we're going to we're going to continue eating crow as a nation until we start recognizing that this is a cultural thing. 100%. It's not about the individual. Yeah, it's not about the individuals who didn't give, you know, didn't provide ind- indicators. It, it, it's about what's the culture that we were brought up in that doesn't allow the permissibility to be vulnerable when we're going through crisis. Dude, you, you've given me so much to unpack there, but uh, have you ever read the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger? Uh, parts of it. Okay. Yes. Well, the, the part of going I have it. I, I, you got it somewhere? In the shelf? Yeah, I have it. I have a bookshelf over here and it's there, but I haven't I haven't read it in full. I've read it. So first off, the guy's an amazing writer. And I, I got to meet him at Fleet Week in San Francisco uh, post-retirement. And I got to sit down with him and ask him a few questions. But, you know, he did look at partly the problem with veterans coming home and committing suicide at staggering. And you just said committing. And, and you know, that is a, a faux pas because it is not passing judgment. If anything, it's damn, what was this person battling where they, they couldn't use the three strongest words in the English uh, language, I need help. Those are so powerful. Well, you know, my, Mike, I don't blame you for using that word because, you know, it was a word that I, I used up until I learned the reframing it two and a half years ago. You know, the, the thing the thing for me is I, I, I didn't realize how powerful the language is. And please continue. I just I, I really want to hear no, it is. what you have it, to you say. Know, it, it is. And, uh, you know, being a Catholic, God bless the uh, the Catholics. I know they have a very uh, specific view on uh, suicide that I don't necessarily uh, share, but there's a lot of things about the, the Catholic religion that I, I disagree with. Um, uh, you know, there is a sense of dying by suicide where someone's trying not to put the burden of their problems on other people. And when you think about that, if you want to look at it, you could say that selfless in a way too. I don't agree with it, but they do it in a selfless uh, manner. When I'd rather they come to me and say, hey, I'm having these problems. Okay, let's work through them. But Sebastian Younger basically looked at uh, modern day society compared to Native American tribal cultures where they have a much lower suicide rate compared to, to our modern day society for a number of reasons. I think we've lost that connective tissue uh, amongst human beings uh, in today's society where people don't really care. You, you've got your inner circles and then beyond that, people really don't care. That, that's my opinion. I don't want to paint uh, an overly drab picture, but um, we just don't have that, that esprit de corps, that homecoming and belong, belonging that people had with even their small communities 
back in the day. It, it takes a uh, village to, to raise a child uh, that very much lived, you know, you know, decades ago when, you know, you, you, you left your parents home at 8 a.m. They said, be back by the, you know, by, by 8 p.m. when dinner served. And basically you were a part of several different families and their parents uh, running in and out of their houses and, and, and things like that. And we, we've lost that. But um, we have. Yeah. The, I, I mean, in many in many communities throughout the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah. The 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 thing about, you know, resources and I agree with you on education, dude. And I think there's a few things I, I disagree with with education in our system today. I mean, hell, you, you're not even educating kids how to be leaders, leadership development in the attributes like empathy and respect and kindness and, and accountability and all those things that go with it. But, you know, and I, I don't know what's going on in terms of education of our, our elementary or grammar schools, but you, you may be more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable to this. Are, are we educating our, our kids on mental health? Are those subjects being taught in, uh, um, in K through 12? So the short answer is, is sort of partially, Partially. Yeah. In, in high schools, it's a bit better. I've worked with an organization called Bring Change to Mind for the past seven years. It's founded by the actor Glenn Close. It's focused on deploying peer-to-peer -peer or training high schoolers to deploy peer-to-peer -peer, uh, mental health communities in high schools and then also create mental health focus curricula to then share amongst high, school, uh, high schools and some universities. Um, <clears throat> so there, so mental health education is actually reasonably challenging at every stage of education. Um, it's under-resourced. At the early level, especially at like elementary school, um, people are concerned around teaching mental health because they're, they're worried that there's liability associated with it. Um, which we did to ourselves. Which we've done to ourselves. Yes, yeah. <laughs> this is like, you know... <laughs> Calling a spade a spade here, we, we've 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 uh, <laughs> we've we've progressed to a point where progressivism has uh, has created issues in its own right. Um, so so yeah, on elementary level, there there you know people are cautious in going in there because there's a lot of legal liability and liability in general associated with it. Um, at the high school level, it's it's better and it's getting more and more better. And, you know, hats off to the young generation, Gen, Gen Z and Gen Alpha for talking more openly about these issues. They've created environments where, you know, it is more permissible to talk about these things. From a resourcing perspective, um, the government, the public sector is getting a bit better yeah. around it, yeah. but we're still, we're still super under-resourced. The, the stat I use constantly is that medical GDP relative to total GDP expenditure, medical GDP expenditure for mental health relative to total medical GDP expenditure is three and a half percent, where we, we, we need to be at around 16 percent uh, for medical GDP expenditure for mental health. And so that extends to, you know, how the public sector, how our school districts are you know, investing in behavioral health and the like. And, uh, you know, there, there are some states that are making leaps and bounds. Um, I will say California has been pretty mm -hmm. good about mm -hmm. it. Um, New York State has been pretty good about it. Um, 
there are certain states like uh, Arizona, which has been really great about it. Um, not not states you you would expect, but but they're there and they're focusing on on investing more. And the thing is, is it requires when it comes to mental health investment, it requires a bunch of different elements and you know communities working in concert it's not just public sector if the public sector said hey we need to prioritize mental health but the communities are saying we need to prioritize you know substance use which is related to mental health but you know we need to we need to prioritize this over talking about mental hygiene and you know trauma support it's that disconnect can lead to issues so it requires a lot of alignment from a bunch of different stakeholders um to further answer your question, at the university level, it's getting better, but at universities, you're just competing for so many different resources. So the short answer to it is it's complicated. The longer answer is things are getting better, but not nearly fast enough to where they need to be. Dude, Zach, I've got two two comments and, and maybe a question. Uh, maybe. Um, one, I'll tell you this. You can have all the resources in the world, but if your culture doesn't support it, you are wasting time. It's the same thing in the military yeah. in the early days of the war. People were like, hey, we've got the, uh, the shrink, the command shrink over here, open door policy. I don't care if, if the shrink had 17 doors to its office. Nobody's breaking the ranks to be the first guy that walks uh, past everyone and into the, uh, the shrink's office. It just culturally, yeah. you, I wouldn't say you're, you're committing career uh, suicide, not, not to use pun on words, but it just... Yeah, there, there would be judgment and you weren't going to do it. Um, I, I equate teaching mental health, though, to the same as teaching like leadership development. Who you have teaching it is like is one of the most important things because it's not somebody you respect, mm -hmm. then you're not going to listen. If somebody's trying to teach me leadership, yet they've never served as a leader, or you know their true character and it's not up to par. It's like, yep, gotcha. Oh, over the head, done. But here, that's a, such a fantastic point. Here, here, here's, here's my question, man, because this is where I struggle. It's like a dichotomy. You've got mental health here and you have mental toughness over here. And, and it's where's the, the, the dimmer switch between the two? At what point? And I hear some people that and I, th I think it goes to then you got to bring in the, the subject of victimhood where they're, they're always complaining about their mental health, just complaining all the time. And, and I'm struggling whether like, OK, are you having legitimate mental health issues or is this a, 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 a product of victimhood where you claim mental health because then you get attention and people are, woe is, uh, woe is me. But in my point is, where, like, where, where is the balance between mental toughness and mental health? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about it on a daily basis, um, primarily because I'm so invested in the idea of mental hygiene. Yeah. The idea that taking 20 minutes a day with daily rituals focused on nutrition, fitness, mindfulness, meditation, therapy, community support, uh, breath work, self-improvement. I'm big on intermittent fasting. That's my new thing now. But, but if you apply those effectively over the course of the day, you can develop a foundational approach towards really meaningful outcomes. So, so there's a lot to unpack there. And, and the starting point would be, you know, there's crisis. And then there's, you know, uh, dysregulation. Dysregulation be, means like I'm having a shitty day, I'm having a panic attack. I'm in, experiencing something that's, you know, causing a lot of discomfort for me. And crisis is 
I'm on, you know, an overpass in the interstate and I can't focus on anything but not feeling anymore. Right. And and, you know, we need to understand the, the difference between the two. Um, but dysregulation can lead to crisis. And the thing is, is I, I feel like as a culture, as a community, we need to understand when we're feeling dysregulated and take action. Be like, OK, I haven't been eating terribly well. I haven't been sleeping you know, I'm not engaging in the fitness regimen that I had previously. And when we can start identifying those things, we're like, okay, we can go from dysregulation back to, you know, a better foundational baseline. For instance, you know, in the context of the military, and you shared it, it really well, it's like, there's stigma around, you know, historically, there's stigma around seeing a therapist or like, from my perspective, when you have people in dysregulation, they should have opportunities to engage in mental hygiene so they don't get to the point of crisis, right? I would love to see, and this is a bias I have, I'd love to see every active and inactive service personnel or every active and inactive member of the, of the military um, have a nutritional solution on hand so that they know nutritionally they have a foundation and then understand, hey, what are they doing or I don't need to understand that. I want them to understand that. What are they doing over the course of a day? Not like what's checking that box once a week, once a month. What are they doing over the course of the day that gives them that opportunity to create that foundation, right? Meaning, hey, we have risk of dysregulation for somebody because they're not feeling, they're feeling isolated. They might been, you know, hitting the bottle more than they have historically because of a breakup or, you know, what have you. Um, that, that in itself is something that we need to understand. It could be considered a crisis. It could be considered something else. The main thing is, is that the person feeling that needs to understand, Hey, I'm, I'm on a path that if there is more momentum associated with it can lead to way, way worse outcomes. And so I can rein myself in, uh, through taking care of myself, not to say I'm not discounting, pharmaceutical solutions or seeing a psychiatrist. That's all an important part of the mosaic. The thing is though, is that often we hit, we hit, we get to the point where we're seeking, you know, crisis oriented solutions. When, if we're looking at prevention, if we're looking at mental hygiene, we're taking care of ourselves in that sense. And so we're relieving pressure on the system as a whole. Dude, I I love the fact that you are very particular with the word mental hygiene, which is hygiene is foundational is foundational is brushing your teeth at night or in the morning or both. Um, but I'm sure you've heard this before, Zach, this is great, but I don't have 20 minutes in my day to, to do breathing exercises or this or this. What, how do you respond to, to that? Do you have five minutes in the day? I mean, this is, this is the reason why I'm calling it mental hygiene is because it's it's very specifically framed in a way where it can be seen as dental hygiene. Yes. A three-minute meditation. For me, it's one of the most effective exercises around it is, by the way, if someone doesn't have 20 minutes in the day for their mental health but has time to go on a run or go to the gym or go work out, then, then you know, you can do those exercises driving to the gym, right? So uh, the, the – there's generally time, but the main thing is, is I started finding very efficient ways to check in with myself and the like. And, you know, I've ultimately started extending how much time I focus on mental hygiene because it's just so transformational. 
But the thing was, the most impactful thing in terms of a short exercise was a gratitude list. Transformational for me, list three to four things that, that I care about that are meaningful to me. At this point in my time, a lot, at this point in time in my life, a lot of it relates to my kids, my wife, the opportunity to be of service. And then as an extension beyond that, to have the opportunity to be, you know, a great team member and family member and things like that. And so, yeah, one could say I don't have time to uh, apply mental hygiene rituals for my life, but those mental hygiene rituals are pretty straightforward and, you know, are not meant to replace meals. It's meant to be things that you can do that you would otherwise, that you can make that, you know, take a few minutes out of your day watching, you know, Netflix or the like. It's not not requiring seeing, a, you know, an individual and talking for an hour. It's not requiring, you know, the community support methods of 12-step. It's, it's, it's a fraction yeah. of that. You know, I'll, I'll take a less subtle approach than you just did. Bullshit. Bullshit. If you're saying <laughs> you don't have 20 minutes a day to do some small foundational exercises to and in the everyday warrior. We're about three pillars, physical, mental, which you could also say emotional and spiritual. And you've got to work now a hundred percent. No one's going to ever be a hundred percent balanced. That is also bullshit. Um, and there's a lot of people that talk about achieving balance. I've never in my life achieved balance, but I always continually strive for it. If I pay a little more attention to maybe my spiritual health, maybe my physical health gets a little out of balance and it's this, this constant game of trying to balance these, these, these pillars in your life. But, uh, do you know how, how many hours the average person spends on social media per day? Take a guess. I, I, I do know this actually it's, it's between two and three hours. Exactly. So if you can't find 20 minutes for you rather than, uh, uh scrolling, uh, aimlessly, uh, then, then the problem is you, uh, and it's a lack of, uh, but- of, of discipline in a way or prioritizing what's important in your life. Yeah. Well, Mike, you bring up a really good point too. And one of the things that I think could be misconstrued around this is it's not like, you know, we're not, we're not, this isn't going to make us saints. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing around this is there's something in the body. There's a, there's a metabolic process called allostasis and it's our capacity to manage stress. And when that overflow, when our, you know, our capacity is filled to manage stress, that's when we start hitting dysregulation and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then that ultimately can lead to crisis. So if you're looking about it, pardon me, if you're, if you're thinking about it, really what you're doing is you're just creating tools to kind of let off the steam so that you're not hitting the dysregulation or crisis point. And, and if you can think about it in that, in that sense, you're just building resilience. It's just a, it's like your mental health muscle. So, so in, in, in essence, it should be seen more as a workout routine as opposed to like some, you know, new age philosophy. It, 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 there's a biochemical, there's a collection of biochemical processes that lead to us feeling burnt out, panicked, stressed, anxious, depressed, you know, so there's a bunch of different ways. Of and, and Zach, I know we only have you for a few more minutes, man. You, your life has been defined by service moving forward. Um, I know you're very passionate, one about PIM, as well as uh, the uh, the podcast Call for Help. Uh, just for the viewers, where can they fall, find Call for Help? What is what is the general focus of that podcast, and, and what can viewers sure. hope to gain from it? 
Yeah, so Call for Help was a podcast I, I co-produced with Lemonada Media, and I was a special correspondent for. And it's about 988. 988 is the, crisis, is the new crisis lifeline. Launched July 16th, 2022. And its purpose is helping navigate people in more of a contextual model of care. It's not meant to induce a law enforcement response when you're calling for mental health needs. Law enforcement responses for be, should be for law enforcement needs. And in the context of mental health, um, a lot of people are fearful of, of using services and, and lines and things like that because they're worried they're, you know, you're going to have you're going to have a, a shock and awe response to, you know, a need that requires navigation <laughs> pointing to the right direction. And so. Um, we wanted to help educate people around why this came to be, the resourcing behind it, and ultimately where it guides people. Because you dial 988 now, the goal is, and this, and Congressman Seth Moulton, who catalyzed the initiative, who's a veteran, he had PTSD, he's someone who cares deeply about the well-being of veterans. He was like, I didn't know where to go when I had PTSD aside from the VA. And so, you know, for people who might not um, have a similar experience as Seth, um, he wanted to create an opportunity for someone to be connected with someone with lived experience, with potentially uh, you know, a contextual model of treatment and support that ultimately would help people find the care they need. That's what it was all about. It's like, if you're a veteran and you're in crisis, you can call. You don't need to drive down, you know, to the to Veterans Affairs in, in your community. You can call, be connected with another veteran, understand what the needs are and where you can go from there. And, you know, the ultimate the ultimate goal is to, you know, provide better support for the system, for for people while relieving and alleviating the burden on the system around people in crisis being, you know, put in all sorts of of challenging situations um, because of the the response that wasn't a contextual response. So the podcast- Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and here's the sad thing. Uh, George, who, who's been working with your team, we had never heard of 988 until we started doing the research on you, which either is totally embarrassing for us or just we haven't been wa- watching the right uh, news venues to, to get the word out there. So um, for people 988 Call for help. Uh, call for help can be found on all the streaming platforms, correct? Yeah, and it's all about learning about what nine eight eight is. This is the evolution of a supported service for navigated uh, mental health support. In PIM, talk talk to me about PIM and sort of the digestibles that you, you've come up with. I know you're, you're short on time. Sure. Where people can find it? Yeah, well, PIM for me was a company I started. Because my wife turned me on to finding natural solutions for my anxiety and mental well-being uh, when I was going through a challenging time and decided to stop self-medicating using alcohol. And I discovered mental health advocacy was very healing for me, but I wanted to focus on more in the private sector for uh, around a company that could provide you know, supporting, safe, evidence-backed, natural solutions for people's mental well-being while we're advocating for things like mental hygiene. So we launched PIM to the public September 2020. Uh, Two-year anniversary is coming up. And 
And the thing for us is, you know, we're all about neurotransmitter health, educating people around metabolic mental health and how they can support themselves naturally to provide a foundation, and then ultimately learn more about what it is that they need to support themselves, uh, you like fitness, yeah. breath work, yeah. mindfulness, etc. But the nutrition element is really about providing uh, products and solutions that you wouldn't necessarily find in your daily diet. So our first product is a mood chew. We're launching a, men- uh, <clears throat> pardon me, we're launching a mental hygiene kit, which is four other products focused on nutrition for mental health. Um, and then, you know, we're launching an attention focused product to support people around memory, focus and attention needs. Um, it's all about nutrition for mental well-being. That, that's awesome. And I couldn't agree more. Plus, you know, we didn't have time to get into plant-based medicine as it pertains to mental health, but, uh, we'll, we'll have to have you back for another, uh, go around. Hey, Zach, uh, dude, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you've educated me. Uh, I know our listeners have learned something. Hey, I, I want to thank you for what you're doing and the fact that you've dedicated your life to helping so many within this, this mental health space. Um, and you know, God bless your father and his memory impacted so many as you'll go on to impact, uh, many as well. Uh, in his name and your name. So again, thanks for, uh, for joining us for this hour on the, uh, the men's journal everyday warrior podcast. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you for doing everything you do for the communities that you care about. Likewise. And that's it. That's all we got again. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the men's journal everyday warrior podcast. Hey, whatever platform you utilize to listen to our podcast, please, please leave a review. We read all of them. That's how we get better. And lastly, again, thank you to our sponsor, Pendleton Whiskey. We've got your six. Cheers.